Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always, and today we have on uh, a guest talking about China. We haven't talked about China in a long time. It's good to have on Dan Blumenthal, who is the author and also of uh, start the book. He's the author of The China Nightmare, The Grand Ambitions of a Decaying State, and is also, I have my notes here, where'd it go? There it is, the Director of Asian Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on Eastern Asian security issues. Uh, you've also worked for the Department of State. You've been to Hong Kong, China. You've been all over the world, it sounds like, Dan. So thank you so much for coming on and talking about um, China and all the stuff that goes along with that process. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. So let's dive into the book. One of the things that you make on uh, a point early on is the end of the Ming Dynasty, in your opinion, is where things really shift for China. I may break down for the listeners what happened to the end of the Ming Dynasty and what changes and why you think that is a pivotal time in Chinese history. Absolutely. So we're going back not too far in, in Chinese history. It's it's ancient history for, for Americans because it's around the time that uh, 16, late 1600s when, <laughs> when America was being settled. But in China, you know, that's not that long ago. So right. the Ming Dynasty fell and, and the Qing Dynasty, which were conquerors from uh, the area now known as Manchuria and Mongolia, uh, conquered, conquered China and uh, took it over. And they were not ethnic Chinese, but they wanted to rule China in the same way that the Ming Dynasty did, with the same mandate of heaven and and uh, the same Confucian practices and all the cultural uh, pieces that the Ming had. And uh, wanted to be more pure Chinese, actually. That's what Qing means in Chinese. But the, the crucial turning point was that, that it was the most expansionist uh, empire, uh, that China has ever seen. So the borders that we now see of China, which are the news today, which include Xinjiang and, and, uh, Mongolia and, uh, Tibet were never part of China until the Qing conquered. And they did so in a very bloody and genocidal fashion. Uh, and then they reconstituted the Sinosphere, which were the vassal states that are now known as Korea and, and Vietnam and so on, uh, to be tributaries, uh, to, to, uh, to the central kingdom, to the Qing dynasty. Yeah. And so you, you, you started back there. A lot of people I hear today talk about Mao and Maoism and, you know, is Xi Jinping kind of, um, you know, how does he interpret what Mao did? Um, how do you think Mao plays a role in the modern state? So you, as you say, you're going back, uh, before most Americans would study history, but Americans at least have some concept of, of Mao. So Xi Jinping and Mao, what similarities are there, differences, and how do you think Xi Jinping interprets what Mao did? Well, the difference, the difference, the biggest difference is that, uh, uh, China is so much, uh, wealthier, uh, now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Mao, um, had wrecked the country through these communist, um, programs and initiatives like, uh, what's called the Great Leap Forward and, um, the Cultural Revolution. And these were big, massive force collectivization programs in farm and agriculture and so on. She had the benefit of, of China going through the reforms in the economy, the market reforms that, uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, and his, um, successors had, uh, effectuated in China. So China became wealthy based on, uh, allowing, uh, markets to flourish. Uh, so the biggest difference is, of course, that China is much more powerful and much wealthier, uh, than, than under Mao. Uh, and, uh, to a large extent that the sort of communist fervor has died down. It, it's a Leninist state under Xi, but it's not necessarily a Marxist or, or a communist state. 
So those yeah. are some big differences. Yeah, and so break, break that down. A lot of people uh, will say Marxist, Leninx, Leninists, uh, or will say communist, will socialist. We'll throw those around in the states, um, depending on where you. As a libertarian, I call everyone just about socialist because <laughs> compared to yeah. what I believe, <laughs> that is socialism. But it's not really socialism by the truest form or communism. So maybe tease out those different categories so people, when you say that, they understand uh, more in, in a broader context what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh... Um, so it, 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 in the Chinese context, but not just in the Chinese context, Mao, Maoism was, was very much, uh, uh, taking from, you know, the other thing people say is that China never learns from the West. Well, they did on, in terms of Marx and Lenin. So, uh, and Stalin. So, you know, communism was really, uh, what Mao was trying to force was complete and utter control by, um, you know, by the state of all means of production. So, a collectivization, meaning there couldn't be any private farms, private steel factories. Mm-hmm. The state was going to set prices, quotas. As a libertarian, you must, you know, be exploding right now. Uh, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to dig it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then you're not saying it's a good thing, so I can live with it. <laughs> yeah. Then on top, on top, no, not at all. God, I mean, you know, I mean, if you, if you ever want to go back and teach anybody why it's really a bad thing, is teach how much people suffered under this. Yes, exactly. I mean, millions died. You know, through forced famines and mm-hmm. shortage, food shortages, and just really awful. You know, we think 20, 30 million people died from, right. from these programs. Uh, so anyway, communism, but it also had this revolutionary fervor that they were going to, uh, ca- capitalism was going to reach a point where it didn't uh, work anymore. And, and that the, uh, uh, what we would today call capital elites would be thrown over by the proletariat. You know, in the Chinese case, by the farmers and the rural peasants. So, you know, landlords, which of course this always leads to violent purges and targeting of, mm. of, of enemies of the state, so to speak. So landlords and owners and shopkeepers were all targeted, purged, uh, and so on. And then they wanted to spread that communist revolution abroad, particularly the division was they were going to do it in East Asia while the Soviets were going to do it in the West. So they were spreading, they were spreading this throughout Southeast Asia as well. Okay. Um, yeah. So let's talk about Russia because we've kind of talked about it yeah. in some context. Um, I, I'm kind of torn on what to think about the Chinese-Russian relationship because you'll see a deal where you know China, uh, China and the, the Russians will strike a deal over Huawei. But if you look at the history and you talk about this in the book, it's been kind of back and forth. It hasn't been this, you know, um, this hardened allies for centuries. So maybe what, what are your thoughts on the current state of uh, China-Russia relations? Well, it's a, it's kind of the key question, right? Because it's been U.S doctrine since Teddy Roosevelt that we're not that China and Russia getting too close uh, is a huge problem for the United States because it would mean these two great powers in Eurasia banding together uh, you know in a hostile coalition to keep the United States out of an important part of the world so um, key question you're absolutely right I mean I talk about it in my book um, you know that that they fought each other uh, they've been fighting each other since at least the 1600s over mm-hmm. border areas and and machinating against each other uh you know they bandied together under stalin and mao for a time and we we paid the price in the korean war uh and the vietnam war of that uh quasi alliance but then they turned against each other viciously so uh mao turned against uh, khrushchev when he replaced stalin uh he thought he was too soft in terms of uh reforming some of what stalin's uh, more radical pro communist programs were and they started skirmishing in the border areas, 
the Chinese and Mao were, were extremely afraid that the Soviets would attack their uh, uh, nuclear sites that the Soviets had helped build. Uh, that paved the way for the opening um, between the United States and China. We're moving up to the 1960s here. Uh, so, uh, and then today, to your question, um, we ought to do a much better job in, in creating wedges between China and Russia because it wouldn't be too hard to do so. So uh, they're getting too close, and they and they're getting too close as allies of convenience. They don't like each other. It's just that China turns to Russia for alternative support in, in oil, and gas, and Russia needs to sell to China. And then there's a sort of anti-U.S. Um, position at the UN and other places. So I know we're talking about the the, the, the uh, decaying part of the state here in a second, but just just stick on the Russia China thing for one second. I, I I believe that personally, American foreign policy is too much influenced by Russia. If you look at Russia's GDP or what they're doing, they are not nearly the threat they were during the Cold War. Um, in in the in the China relationship, Russia needs China far more than China needs Russia. Would be my 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 take because um, Russia's pressure in Europe is mainly manufactured by, again, from my perspective, a lot of old historical things. I don't think Russia is going to roll tanks across um, Europe. And so it feels like China really has the upper hand there. You might disagree. I'm curious your thoughts. Uh, well, it, China does have the upper hand. No, there's no question that China has the upper hand. So uh, Russia also needs a, a kind of bailout of its energy sector, right? It's, it's, it's banned from, uh, uh, selling uh, to so many countries now in, in, in the West that China both has the capital to invest in Russian uh, oil infrastructure to get that oil out mm-hmm. into the East, as well as to to be a massive consumer. So, on that uh, in that respect, uh, China absolutely has the upper hand. Um, you know, Putin's an extremely wily uh, you know leader, so so he he has negotiated. From a, from a position of weakness, uh, an equal partnership at this point with China and they're respecting each other's interests, but China has the upper hand. Yeah. And specifically on the oil, if you look at China's median, um, their 400 million middle class and their, their median income, you know, I think the, the low end is like 3000 a year salary, something like that is what they make. Um, you talk about old demand moving forward. Um, you know, they will be buying, they, they will pass the U.S. number one consumer bill, you would expect. In short order, you know, next decade or so. Um, and there will be a major buyer of that. So the U.S., that's one way to talk about creating wedge. You know, the U.S. being a part of that process is a natural way for us to get in there because once you become dependent on oil, you are dependent on oil. Like <laughs> you just can't stop it. And in China, you know, let's talk about maybe we talk about the amount of poverty. We can tie this with the oil conversation. They have this middle class of what is it four or five hundred million now. Um, those people cannot go back to poverty. And when I was there last uh, November, you know, they were talking about their parents were in the rice fields and now they're not. So um, you're, they're not going back to that. So the more we um, sell and trade with China, the harder it is for them to go back. It would seem, from my perspective, and always one of those things. Um, so what are your thoughts on how do we drive maybe wedges without military intervention? Well, uh, you know, dr- driving wedges between the two, uh, absolutely. So, so we've started to, to sell, uh, shale, uh, you know, both LNG and oil to, to China. They're, they're a big, they're a big buyer now of U.S. Uh, oil and gas. And, and that obviously gives them leverage on the prices and negotiations with, with the Russians. So that's, that's one wedge. Uh, we did try recently, and I think we should keep doing it as we got into, Arms reduction talks with the Russians. We, we, we got the Russians to agree that, to say, you know, the Chinese have to be part of these talks because really those Chinese missiles, uh, medium range, uh, in particular, but, but, you know, ICBMs as well, 
uh, you know, Russia's a target potentially. I mean, if you look from a perspective of, of uh, just the capabilities that China has, Russia should be and is more worried about uh, some of Chinese strategic uh, missile uh, capabilities than, than, than we are. So uh, there are all kinds of ways to insist in diplomatic fora that the Chinese are part of things uh, to make them very uncomfortable with and make the Russians very uncomfortable uh, in terms of um, in terms of shared threat perceptions that the Russians might not not talk about publicly. Okay, let's go to uh, Xi Jinping here for a second. Now, you talk about it in the book, and I think a lot of people will agree that when he took over, the things changed. Now, you could argue what severity, maybe people, uh, people would uh, disagree on that, but things did change. His his um, competitors for the top spot are all in jail. As far as I know, they're still in jail. Um, things have changed, and maybe some of the hopes that uh, Americans in the West had prior to Xi Jinping coming to office are now gone. Is that, um, in your opinion, a result mainly of Xi Jinping or the party was already moving that way and he just kind of amplified that voice? Well, I say in the, in the book, the party was, was moving in that direction. So it had started. So if you look at, let's say the peak 2002, 2003, the Chinese had entered the World Trade Organization. It was much more capitalistic. It let entrepreneurs thrive. The economy, that was the boom. Uh, state-owned enterprises and state banks were allowed to fail. Uh, real reforms throughout the late 90s and, and into the early part of this century. Uh, but then when uh, uh, Deng's uh, successors passed from the scene, uh, Hu Jintao, who took over, was a very weak character and, and could not withstand the attacks from what they call the conservatives, which were really neo-Maoists in China. They said that this reform was going to kill the party. So he started to stop the economic reforms, the market-based economic reforms. And with that, he stopped some of the very gradual legal reforms he had made, uh, Deng had made, I'm sorry, and uh, some of the political reforms. And so we really saw a slide backwards internally in China uh, and then a bit more of a lashing out externally, if you recall, 2009 in the South China Sea and so on. But Xi Jinping really came in in 2012 and grabbed that uh, – process afraid that the party was going to die and and really decided to wake it up again through uh, very intense means of internal repression and control and much more uh, muscular attitude on the foreign stage okay so maybe tease out this idea you talk about the book of reunification and how we're seeing that play out today reunification yeah so i i argue in the book that there's a continuum actually it's not it's not xi jinping it's not deng xiaoping it's not mao is that the Qing dynasty collapsed and the Qing dynasty had conquered Taiwan uh, from um, <clears throat> in, in a series of, of conflicts. It, you know, we can go back to Dutch colonialism, Portuguese colonial, colonialism, but the Qing dynasty had reconquered uh, uh, Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, uh, all these parts of, of, of China that they now call China. Uh, but it, it one, one thing a lot of people miss, and I have a little bit of this in the book is, how successful the successor states to, to the Qing dynasty, uh, including uh, what, what were the nationalists, the Republicans who were fighting the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, the, two, the two agreed that China should be completely reunified to look exactly like it had during the Qing dynasty. And they were remarkably successful in getting the U.S. and other countries to agree to that. And so what we have today is really the last remaining empire in the world. So if you think about it, all the other empires collapsed. So right. what would happen today if we woke up and said, well, you know what? The Ottoman Empire, you know, the Turks got back the entire Ottoman Empire. So 
right. in fact, her, you know, right. I mean, that just doesn't exist. Same right. in Austria-Hungary. So uh, the claim to Taiwan is, is an imperial claim. It's that it was once part of China under the Qing dynasty. They lost it to the Japanese uh, and they should really by right have it again. So, yeah, one of the things when you talk about this idea of the book, I've been thinking about a lot since um, the COVID uh, outbreak in March where we've seen China kind of escalate things in Hong Kong, on the Indian border, um, and then now uh, obviously Taiwan. How, how much do you think this is um, maybe this reunification plan that's being – obviously the Indian stuff is a little bit different, but um, the Hong Kong and the Taiwan stuff, how much is part of this the natural progression of what they're doing? Uh, and now was a good time for it? Or do you think this was, you know, hey, the world's distracted with COVID-19, you know, and we might get some blowback. So if we're going to go, go now. Well, I think it's much more the latter. So it's distraction of the world plus internal problems inside China. Uh, Xi Jinping was getting a lot of criticisms for his handling of COVID inside of China. It's It's nothing like what it's being described in the West. Uh, it's, it's, it's viewed as incompetent, uh, response in China. And so he needed, uh, distractions. So he was picking fights with India at the time. Mm-hmm. He was picking fights and we're talking about this year. Yeah. Uh, South China Sea. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then he, and then he marched back into Hong Kong, so to speak, to, uh, abrogate the treaty he had, obligations he had with the UK and, uh, and has been putting a lot more pressure on Taiwan. Yeah. Do you think, um, so my, I'll, I'll give you my one possibility that I might see happen. If the EU grows a spine and they want to actually stick up to China, uh, I think that that's kind of pivotal to what might happen, but let's presume that they do. Um, China has kind of pushed all these borders over the past few months, uh, with Taiwan, with Hong Kong, with India, Australia, we're going to talk about in a second. Um, do you think on some level Xi Jinping has kind of given himself more cards to play so he can pull back from some areas if the if the internationals want to come after him and say, hey, listen, you know, the COVID stuff, whatever you think about that, but you guys didn't handle it right and we're all mad, so here we come. And so now he's got, okay, well, we'll we'll stop with India or we'll work out something to Australia or we'll leave Taiwan alone. Or do you think maybe that's part of the thought process there? Um I th- I think I think what what happens with with the Chinese is is the strategy is always like uh probing actions. Right to see uh, how far they can get mm. and then pull back mm. uh, if they can't go any further. And uh, it's, it's the old Leninist saying, right? You push and push and um, I'm paraphrasing. If there's mush, you know, you keep, you know, you keep <laughs> right. pushing, but you know, so the Chinese don't necessarily think about strategy in the same ways we do. So they'll use uh, some level of force, even if it's unsuccessful by our standards, uh, if they've reordered the political map, they'll count it as successful. This was famously done in 1979 when they attacked Vietnam. They lost military battles, but they achieved their strategic outcomes and objectives. And they keep doing that uh, with respect to India. They pulled back, but they're not done. Uh, you know, in terms of Hong Kong, they are victorious from their perspective. And uh, with Taiwan, you know, it's, it's sort of up to us to see how successful they'll be. Yeah, well, I think about Kissinger's book, and he kind of talks about this idea of, you know, we're we're very much kind of laser focused, and we're going in, and they're always just kind of doing these things, and you know, they they think they can win battles without ever fighting a war and, and stuff like that. So obviously, these are more, um, you know, frontal attacks, if you will. But I just try to always wonder um, you know, how we balance that in the West, and do we not maybe look at this what they're doing as more of a tactician type uh, thing, is whereas we're more of a you know kind of coming at you and going to attack you. Well, I, I think 
um, I think it's true in, in the Kissinger book. He talks a lot about this game go mm. you know, versus chess. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and so this positional thinking, right? So you position yourself right so that, um, an attack is successful. So you spend a lot of time kind of, uh, positioning yourself militarily, setting the stage politically, information battles, uh, and then it becomes easier to defeat your enemy. Um, whereas in the West, you think more in terms, even if you're a good strategist, you think more in terms of chess pieces mm-hmm. and it's a bit more, it's a bit more linear. Uh, and, and the division between war and peace is more clear where in Chinese thinking, the division is not as clear. Okay. So you mentioned there's some blowback on uh, in China for Xi Jinping. Let's talk about uh, two things here. Let's talk about Tiananmen Square um, and kind of how China's handled that. A lot of people maybe in the West don't realize that, in China, if you have WeChat and you type in Tiananmen Square Massacre, they will remove it a couple times, and then they will just delete your account. You can't talk about it there. I wondered when we were there last November if the local Chinese wonder why so many Americans want to come look at Tiananmen Square. like <laughs> Because you know they can't talk about it, and so there's some that don't know. It's kind of hard to tell who knows and who doesn't know because you can't talk about it. Um but you talk about in the book, there's this fear to kind of going back to that. That's kind of living in, their, in, the, in the backdrop of what, what Xi Jinping – uh, and the CCP is thinking, um, did that play into this weakness as perceived? Like, Hey, we're going back to that, uh, when you, in the pre COVID world. Very much so. So the, the Tiananmen Square still haunts the Chinese Communist Party. They still, the official belief is that the U.S. backed a group of powerful dissidents in China in order to bring down the, um, Chinese Communist Party regime. Mm-hmm. And they still feel that that's true and they still feel that ultimately that's the U.S. plan. So when they arrest dissidents, uh, they often charge them with, even if there's no evidence, with colluding with the West to bring down yeah. the CCP. That's the greatest fear. And, and, and there's still a siege mentality inside the, uh, the standing committee of the Politburo, uh, uh over Tiananmen because they really viewed that as a near death experience. It, it, it- one of the things I write about in the newsletter is this idea of free speech here in the West. Obviously, I'm pretty much a free speech absolutist, but I think in the West we have these debates over you know harmful speech and hate speech, and those are fine and good conversations to have. But um, I don't think people in the West really appreciate once the government controls speech how dangerous that can be. Maybe give some uh, if you have some practical examples or um, some yeah. ideas of what we should be concerned about from the Western side of this equation. Uh, in terms of how how they might um, affect our free speech? Or? Well, well, obviously we have the security laws, but just maybe, um, I don't think people in the West, when they say, hey, we need hate speech laws, really appreciate yeah. what they're giving up by going for a law like that. Because you can see it in China, but we don't, we think, oh, well, let's pass this law for hate speech. Like, well, hold, hold on. <laughs> that canon will be used against you. Right. So, yeah, when you hear here in the West, I'm coming at this from a little bit of a different angle, but when you hear that we're uh, authoritarian or that we, um, you know, crack down on the press or dissent. I mean, we have no idea what we're talking about. I right. mean, if you're in China, so I'll answer it in two ways. If you're in China and you decide to go into some press outlet and criticize anything about the party, I mean, even now it's response to COVID, you know, anything, mm. you will probably get arrested uh, or, or disappeared. 
I mean, to live without freedom is, is, you know, it's not an, it's not an abstraction. I mean, you can't, families are afraid of talking about the real response to COVID. They don't have any, I mean, they don't have any information about it. And then to your point, um, yeah, I mean, you have to be very careful in the West of, um, I always say that, that the response to China is not to become more like China, right? Mm. So sometimes you have people arguing that we need more industrial policy mm-hmm. or, you know, that's how you compete. But mm-hmm. I mean, you can take it once you go down that road, you, you, you know, states don't want to give back power and China is a great example of that. So if you, uh, start to, yeah, it's just a very careful line to draw. I always say this, you know, if you look at what China fears the most, they tell you on a daily basis, they fear free speech <laughs> because they arrest people all the time for what you say. Right. So if you, if you know what they fear the most, it's, it's, it's ideas. And so in the West, we should think about the, okay, well, we don't want to be like China. So therefore let's not hamper ideas. Um, that's right. And so that, that, that's the larger point, um, from my standpoint that I wanted to get to, but let's talk about, uh, back to Xi Jinping. You led the book, these two step, um, Time periods 2020 to 2035 and 2035 to 2050. Obviously he won't be alive. We don't think unless they've got some kind of superhuman serum over there. Um, but what are these two time periods for and from the West? How should we be watching this and how likely as you're going to tease out what, what it is, obviously, but how likely do you think it is that they will accomplish these goals? Right. So, you know, these are, these are Marxist Leninist planning documents. So you have to take them with a grain of, grain of, of salt. Uh, also they don't account for the fact that by, 2030, China will be a very old, elderly nation right. with the demographics of, of Europe uh, without the wealth of Europe. So there's lots of my book. The reason I say it's decaying or unmet ambitions is there's lots of obstacles in the way. Right. But the plan is to become a nation that's uh, peer, a peer with the United States militarily, technologically, all the other ways they define power, you know, culturally, they define power, ideologically, they define power through that by, um, you know, by the time periods that you, that you mentioned. I will say that, you know, I've been, I've been watching China for, for a while now, including inside our government, inside our uh, Department of Defense, and they have been on plan when it comes to military modernization. They've done exactly what they said they would do, um, even though it was poo-pooed here. So we have to take these documents seriously to get a, a, a notion of what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that they'll, it, it, it's not that they'll meet all their plans or they'll, or they'll realize all of them, but we have to get a sense of what they want to do. We also have to figure out how to frustrate some of those plans. Yeah. You mentioned military technology, um, general Spalding's book. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but he's very concerned about the military technology from a couple different angles. We've had um, some of our, uh, fighter pilots, uh, fighter pilots, fighter, fighter planes built in China, parts of them at least. Uh, he's worried about their, you know, uh, Huawei and stuff like that. Um, but th- that's one perspective. But if you go to like Nigeria and you look at some of the military technology that they've bought from the Chinese, it's junk. It doesn't work very well. Uh, so I'm kind of torn on the military technology because, uh, this is the problem that I have with the China discussion generally, um, is that on one hand, some people view China as a very big threat and they're very grandiose and they have these big things and you know they got these people and da 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 it's like okay that's a real threat but then if you go look at where they do stuff around the world it's usually not high quality stuff and so i want to turn start talking about the decaying part in a second but uh, the military technology is interesting because there's plenty of african nations that are frustrated with chinese military technology right now is that just what they're selling or is it uh resembles what they have you know to defend their mainland well it's it's what they're selling for sure 
Um, I would look at it in terms of pockets of excellence. Okay. So um, if you want to see a real concrete example, you look at this whole suite of capabilities that has now provided them with the ability to do precision strike warfare, mm-hmm. which was our monopoly. So the ability to use their missiles and uh, their most advanced aircraft uh, to target, uh, to survey, to find, uh, uh, you know, military assets uh, of ours in Japan and elsewhere, also enabled by their space-based capabilities and their cyber capabilities. Yeah. It's really, really advanced. And, and people are, uh, our military sometimes says, you know, at, at this point, there's possibilities of losing a war over Taiwan to them. So it's advanced, but absolutely. I mean, China is a huge place and there's places in China where it's much less advanced. Um, you know, let's say away from the Taiwan Strait or, or across from Japan. Um, also, you know, the scale is so massive. I mean, we don't know how certain units would operate in, mm-hmm. in wartime, but it, it's certainly, it's certainly advanced. Okay. So let's talk about the decay. That's part of the book. And when I first started looking into China, to me, the most obvious thing um, from kind of a, a novice perspective was the Belt and Road Initiative. To me, that seemed, that was the, I, I would read people talk about how great this is, how China's going to dominate the world. And um, I have a little bit of experience with Africa and I, I was just sitting there going, the, the people of Africa will eventually wake up and say, no, 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 we're not going to take this anymore. And what is China going to do? Are they going to go evade some African nation? That seems unlikely. Uh, and once one African nation does it, multiple African nations will do it. Now, this is pre-COVID. In the COVID world, we've seen African nations starting to say, you know what? We're not really looking to pay you back that money. We're kind of wanting to cut ties, and others have tied the bonds. To me, the Belt Road Initiative is one of the biggest um, vulnerable points for uh, China, and everyone agrees with that. What is your take on that? Well, I agree. I mean, they're overstretched and, uh, but it, it's only true if we take advantage of it. So if you think about a competition with two competitors, if only one is competing, let's say putting out a big, uh, initiative like the Belt and Road Initiative. And even if the work is shoddy in Africa, and even if, uh, it's corrupt, and even if Africans are uh, concerned about, uh, being indebted to China, if there's no alternative, then they're, they're going to adopt it, right? So, so in, in the in the abstract, you know, the U.S. has to, U.S. and, and the West has to offer better alternatives and, and undermine it. Um, but, uh, but yes, they're they're China is overstretching. That's part of that's part of the criticism, frankly, she is getting. So, they have to spend foreign currency reserves in order to fund these product uh, projects. Those are being drawn down too fast, um, and and the backlash is there. So. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, t- a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it, it, it provides China with this centrality. This, mm-hmm. you know, we have created this new geopolitical forum, the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, it's a big stretch for a country that's not yet wealthy. Right. Yeah. On the African investment side, I've, I've, um, I've actually doing a presentation. I will get off here to some African nationals about attracting U.S. investors. And the hard part is, is that our laws in the U.S., really prohibit us from working in Africa just as much as some of their laws do. And so China's, because they are socialists, whatever you call them, um, communists on the spectrum, you know, they can kind of you know, allow their people to go, the bribe laws, you know, the back in the currency, uh, you know, they, they can do things that Americans can't do that gives them a competitive advantage. Now, some of those things I'm not in favor of, obviously, but there are some laws in the U.S. like, you know, the fact that you can commit a felony on foreign soil 
seems absurd to me um, for, for the most part. And so um, I think Americans like to say, well, we, we want to compete in Africa. Well, okay, well, our laws prohibit investors unless you're going to be ExxonMobil or some big company from going down there. So um, how would you respond to that? Well, some of those laws are important. I mean, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, you know, is, 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 is important. And what we should be, you know, doing is uh, corruption is a terrible, terrible problem in, in a lot of these countries. But the way I would answer that is, is, um, I'd say that, uh, what we do well, what the Chinese do well is, is they go into a country, they pay off, uh, who they need to pay off. It's corrupt. They get the concessions. Mm-hmm. They can send mass scales of engineers uh, to build a road or a railway uh, and so forth. Um, what, what we've done well in the past is offer access to our own market in exchange for big structural changes in country X's market. So uh, that was the idea behind uh, the, the TPP, for example, that Vietnam had signed up to uh, undo its state-owned enterprise structure in return for access to our market. But that's the biggest power we have. That's what we do well. Uh, so, you know, things will change. Things will stay the same unless, uh, we go, we prioritize a couple of those African nations and say, here's the deal. I mean, we'll, we'll sign some kind of trade investment agreement with you, but you've got to clean up, uh, the corruption in your system, have better laws, everything that would actually attract U.S. investors. True. Okay. Um, you mentioned this a couple of times. Let's talk about the aging population. That is another thing that, that is, doesn't, you know, you had the one child policy. Um, and it's weird because, um, uh, I think it's, uh, it's either your book or another book that referenced, um, people walk around with multiple kids and how they're kind of getting funny looks. And I can't remember where I read that at, but uh, I was recently talking to someone about the, anyways, it's it, like, you know, it's so this is a problem. It's what we don't, Again, it's a thing in the West we don't really appreciate because we, you know, you can have kids or not have kids or whatever, but when you force a society to have one kid, um, either you're going to hide the second one secret or have it aborted, those impacts and those, those, um, that foundation that you're laying, A, from a psychological standpoint is one thing, but B, um, it takes a long time just to replace the, the people that are going to die off. And so do you think that they can overcome this, this problem? I don't. I mean, not. Unless they, they have an immigration policy, it's too late. <laughs> I mean, the, the only the only answer that we've seen um, throughout the the world in terms of dealing with aging populations is immigration policies that make sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, you cannot all of a sudden, and we see this in France and we see this in Japan. You cannot all of a sudden just say, you know, everyone have kids after thirty, right. forty years, or have these pronatal policies. But, you know, if you talk about the, the wages of totalitarianism, one child policy is, a, is exhibit A. I mm-hmm. mean, there's nothing more totalitarian than telling families how many children they could have. Right. And, and the, the, the country's paying for it. So not only do they have too many aging people and not enough young people, but they also have that created a huge distortion and they selected males over females. So, so the amount of sex selective abortions in China is just a human tragedy. And now you have, you're going to have hundreds of millions of males who cannot find, uh, marriage mates. And that's just going to be, that's science fiction, frankly. <laughs> well, and on the immigration policy, as I understand it, um, uh, 
that, you know, you can move to China, but you can't ever become a citizen of China, you know, and so like me or you could go there and live there for potentially 40 years theoretically, but they would never allow us to be a citizen. So we're always going to have a green card or whatever the system is. I can't remember. Um, and so you talk about immigration, that would be a fundamental shift in their policy. It's not like yes. they're going to expand the number of people who can become Chinese citizens. They would have to start that process. Yes. It would be a, 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 a huge, massive change in the system and and japan hasn't done it so it's unlikely these are cultural uh issues about uh, uh you know uh, how homogeneous uh, these countries want want themselves to be right you could you could see you know things like massive uh uh sort of uh guest labor programs or something like that but in terms of actually uh overturning this destruction of the family structure in china i don't i don't see it yeah, another thing, um, Christian thought of this, if you did have immigrant, immigration policy, um, presumably people that would move to China would be a little bit more wealthy, um, could afford living in, in a nice city. You have these people who are not in the nice cities who are wanting to move in to get a job. Now they're put lower on the pecking order. That might cause some unrest as well. So this whole idea of, you know, we're going to plan it out. You, you can just see that there's, uh, probably a litany of other issues I'm not even thinking of right now that it could cause if, as they try to undo this, um, immigration might actually cause problems with the folks who can't afford to, you know, move to Beijing or Shanghai or where they want to live at because, uh, now you have all these foreigners that are moving to the cities. Well, they also have this, this population control, uh, another totalitarian experiment that is failing. And on top of which, so if you're, if you're a, a poor rural person and you want to move to a city, it, it's been done, obviously, in a mass scale, but you don't get, you don't even get the urban rights that, you know, say that you, say you move to New York City or something like that. You'd be considered a resident of New York City with all the right, rights and privileges, buying an apartment, you know, uh, driver's license. You don't have that in China. They're still trying to restrict it. And on top of which, these, these people who live on farms in China, don't have any property or land rights. Mm. And, and so they're not getting any sort of wealth out of their land or, or, you know, so that, that again is, is why China's economy is stagnating over the long term. Yeah. And, and so I was reading, um, and I, I know I was trying to watch this before we got started that you and HR McMaster just did a, a discussion or a debate. I was watching a little bit of it and I was watching, I read, uh, uh, the debate between HR McMaster, uh, and, um, um, Kishore, uh, yeah, 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 from the, uh, the, the monk debates. That's what I think, yeah. the monk debates. And one of the things that, that stuck out to me in that debate was that when you look at these things, uh, when you look at China, there are a lot of problems. Um, and w- you, you talk about this decay and you talked about, um, kind of one of the problems that the, the Soviets had was these elites, um, at the end, they were kind of, you know, they had a lot of money and had a lot of power. They wanted to overthrow it. I can't, I can't remember the connection with, uh, HR now. I done lost that. But anyways, um, you know, we were working on some deals with Chinese investors at the beginning of the year. And, uh, oh, I know what it was. I know what it was. Um, we're looking at work some deals with the Chinese investors at the beginning of the year, like January. And they called me up and said, Hey, listen, we're done for the year. I'm like, what do you mean you're done for the year? I'm like, it's Wuhan. <laughs> Come on, guys. It's a little virus in Wuhan. Let's chill out. They're like, no, no, no. We're done for the year. Um, and then they've been done for the year. Um, and so one of the things in that debate they pointed out was that why do all these people go back to China? Now that's a fascinating question, but it's not as clear cut when you live in a totalitarian society <laughs> that why you're going back or why you're not going back. You know, those, those, those answers aren't, aren't exactly clear. Um, but the, the rich elites in China, you know, if, if they have freedom to kind of do what they want to, they're probably willing to stay. But if they don't, they're going to either look for a regime change 
or to move their money outside of the country. Um, I think that's something that you talk about in the book a little bit, uh, but doesn't get enough discussion that, listen, the political elites or the uh, uh, the corporate elites, I don't care what country you're in, they got some sway. And so uh, maybe break that down, how that, how might that yeah. up, and where we're at in that process right now. Well, uh, they are voting with their feet. And uh, if they can get their children out, I mean, just go to uh, any university in the United States or the UK or Australia or even uh, uh, prep schools, high schools. If they can get their children out, they get them out. And if they can buy property in the United States, uh, you know, just go to or Canada, Vancouver, San Francisco, they buy property. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily the case that they're going to leave permanently, but they are hedging their bets big time. And, uh, and so, um, and, and that's not, that's not just, you know, that's, that's CCP, high level CCP uh, mm-hmm. figures and their children. So part of it is to get them educated, but part of it is absolutely to bet, to have a hedge in case things go awfully wrong for that, for their families, where they, they get targeted or something happens with the regime. So that is not a show of confidence in Xi Jinping. Okay. Um, what other weak points or things that maybe in the book that you wanted to discuss that I didn't get to that you want to mention? Uh, the book again is The China Nightmare, The Grand Ambitions of a Decaying State. Um, we'll link to it in the show notes so people can check it out. But any, anything else in the book that you wanted to touch on that I didn't get to? I think you covered it pretty well. I mean, if you want to cover the weak, weak points, I mean, you know, if we take advantage of the geography, they're surrounded by U.S. allies. Uh, mostly democratic us allies so uh that sort of offers us a strategy if we want to take it which is um how to push back how to resist expansionism uh, the geography is for china is not not good one coastline the other uh, of course you touched on the, the demography and, t- and and the economic slowdown what uh what i think not enough people are paying attention to and there's a foreign affairs article i think it was this week uh by a, a former uh influential party official in the party school talking about how um, hollow the party is. Uh, I, I urge everyone to read it in Foreign Affairs magazine uh, is that the elites inside the party who can are really starting to really blatantly and bluntly criticize Xi Jinping for, uh, for missteps, for arrogance, for incompetence. And so when I talk about legitimacy and more political fractures than we can see, this is one of the hardest things to predict before it happens. And then everyone always says, Oh, of course that was going to happen. And, and, you know, that, that's sort of a, a split in the regime, uh, more fighting in the regime, something that just is a crisis inside the, the, the top levels of the CCP that will become obvious after the fact, but is, is not unlikely. Well, it's like the, um, I think it's Hemingway, uh, one of his characters. He's in one of his stories. He goes, how'd you go broke? He goes, well, gradually, then suddenly, you know, and that's kind of how this stuff happens is that you're like, like, Oh God, it's taking forever, taking forever. And then one day you're like, Oh wow. And as you say, after it happens, everyone's like, I knew it. I knew it. Okay. Well, for 40 years, we all knew it. Right. Right. That's exactly right. And so, um, one final question for me is one of the things that I've, of course, as a libertarian, the crazy libertarian here, um, I've said that one of the the ways that the U S could actually put pressure on China is actually sound fiscal policy <laughs> because they deflate their currency, their printing currency, they, they got all these shadow banks, they got all this crazy stuff going on. If we could just make our dollar sound and make sure we're not, you know, of course, I don't want to get in the debate over all the printing money we've, we've done lately, but stop printing money, make the currency sound. Um, to me, that's one way to really 
uh, put pressure on the Chinese. What are your thoughts on that? And then we'll let you go with that one. Well, fiscal policy, absolutely. Because what if, what if they couldn't buy our debt mm-hmm. because it was less, less to buy? I mean, they're dependent on buying our debt. And then of course, sound fiscal policy would give a little bit more space for, for, uh, stable defense spending as well. So uh, uh, sound fiscal policy is key. Well, that we can, we can dream, right? <laughs> yeah, right? Okay, Dan, where can people find your work? Obviously, we'll link to your book. Um, where do you want to, to the website, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook? Where would you be sending people? Yeah, so um, if you go to Amazon and, and type in the China Nightmare, uh, the, grand, you know, the Grand Ambitions of a Decaying State, it'll pop up right there for you. Okay. Now I'm on a page. It's only available on Kindle. Is that correct? Well, um, it will be, it, it, it sold out, uh, fast. So okay. it is, it, they are working hard to restock the hardcover as well. Okay. Okay. So, right. so, uh, you know, for your readers should know that you can get on Kindle right now, but bear with us. Uh, there's a COVID, uh, distribution problem, and, but it's coming. A lot more hardcovers are coming very quickly. Awesome. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time today and best of luck to you in the future. Thank you so much.